Welcome to the JNMP podcast. My name is Elizabeth Hyten. I'm the JNMP podcast editor, and I'm here with this month's editor's choice, which is a paper focusing on upper limb neurobilitation in chronic stroke patients. I'm joined by one of our own associate editor at the JNMP, Professor Nick Ward from the Department of Clinical and Motor Neuroscience at the UCL Institute of Neurology in Queen's Square, London. Nick's going to be telling us all about the Queen's Square Upper Limb Neurobilitation Program and specifically what clinical gains in chronic stroke patients were observed after the program. So Nick, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Hello. I wondered if you could start off by telling us sort of exactly what is known about stroke rehabilitation and does the likelihood of improvement in stroke diminish over time? When we think about stroke, the first thing we have to realise is that it is the, one of the commonest causes of physical disability in the world. And in terms of management, we've got very good over the last few years at the hyperacute or the acute management of stroke through the introduction of first thrombolysis and more recently thrombectomy and a lot of resources are, are put into that area but the issue about how you promote recovery after stroke optimally is probably far less understood than it ought to be. And I wondered if you could tell us about the Queen Square, the upper limb neurobilitation program that you outline in your paper and, and sort of how it relates to this stroke rehabilitation. So at Queen Square, we decided to start up an upper limb rehabilitation program. I mean, that's a relatively niche thing to do, but we did it in response to what we perceived to be something that was really lacking for our patients. We'd be seeing patients who would come to clinic who had had some rehabilitation attention for gait and balance, for example, but the arms uh, and hands seemed to be relatively neglected. And we were interested in the idea of whether we could improve outcomes in these patients who were mostly chronic stroke patients, by which I mean people who are at least six months down the line after their strokes, whether we could make quite significant improvements in their, in their ability to use the arm and hand. So the first thing you do in that situation is you go to the literature. So there are some approaches to try and see whether we can improve outcomes. Most of the studies have been done using things like constraint-induced therapy or repetitive task training or occasionally some studies using robotics. And unfortunately, many of these studies are they're either negative or they don't produce big enough changes to be, produce a dramatic effect. One of the issues is that those studies are confounded by the fact that they're being delivered in relatively low doses, so tens of hours of therapy in many, in many of these clinical trials. So there are two issues that we had to deal with. One is we felt that the dose of whatever the intervention was needed to be much higher. And secondly, we felt that uh, rehabilitation was more than just delivering exercises, more than just getting people to do repetitive task training and in fact rehabilitation is, is quite complex and we can come to that so we set the program up patients were seen in clinic and the ones that we brought onto the program come in to a three-week program where they're timetabled for about 90 hours of therapy uh, and the therapy is set up in order to try and improve the ability to use the arm and hand even though it's not always directed exactly at the arm and hand it might work at gait or, or trunk control or something but most of it is to do with the upper limb 
So you've got this sort of fairly short course of a program, um, but it's sort of high intensity for a short duration. So, um, which obviously was administered to these patients um, with chronic stroke. So what did you find? What were the main findings from the program? Yeah, so, I mean, as, as we expected, we thought that we would be able to make a difference to these patients. One of the really important things when we set the program up was to make sure that we had a range of outcome scores. So even though this is not a randomized clinical trial, it's just a report of a clinical service that we're delivering in, in the NHS. One of the things that, that people in this field have to do more is to record data. So what is the impact of the treatment that you're delivering? So we had a range of scores and we found that there was, not only was the improvement from admission to discharge at three weeks significant, but the changes were clinically meaningful. So in other words, we were achieving changes that would be described as reaching the minimum clinically important difference for each of those scores. One of the things that we weren't quite so sure about was whether those changes would be sustained. So we made sure we followed people up at six weeks after discharge, and then again at six months after discharge, and we repeated all the scores. And we found that on average, not only did people maintain those improvements, but uh, in many cases, the improvements continued to improve after discharge. So in fact, we started to think about this not as a three-week program, but as a six-month program. But people would come in for the first three weeks, they would receive these high-quality, high-intensity, high-dose therapy, but actually the impact of that, of what they experienced in those three weeks, was continuing for the next six months. And that has sort of very important implications. And you mentioned that you've you know, tested this on a wide range of outcomes, or at least a wide range of outcomes were administered through the clinical program. Were these all sort of physical, um, sort of objective measures? Was there any patient reported outcomes in there about how the patients felt they might have improved? Yeah, that's a good question. So we, we had outcome scores for impairment and also for activity, but we did also have patient reported outcome scores in there. So the pattern of the improvement that we saw across the whole range was fairly consistent. So quite large uh, improvements during the three-week program, but continued improvement um, at six weeks and at six months. I mean, the other thing to say about the patients that we, that we brought in is because it's not a clinical trial, essentially our inclusion criteria were extremely broad. And if you look at the paper, you can see from the uh, results figures that the range of impairments, the range of upper limb impairments was very broad. So people who had Fugelmeier scores in single figures going up to people who were certainly you know, near, the, near the top of the, of the score. So our criteria for bringing people in were essentially whether we thought that we could help them and we could move them along and get them to a place where they could achieve the goals uh, that they wanted to achieve, whether it was trying to get back to work or whether it was trying to improve their ability to participate in activities that they enjoyed doing. Which brings me quite nicely onto my next and final question for you, Nick, about where, where to next. Obviously, you mentioned that there's a, um, a broad range of patients were included in this program and it was not a randomised controlled trial. So, so what would you recommend for patients and clinicians who might be listening to the podcast? So I think probably the major impact I think there are two main messages that come out of this paper. The first one that, that was, is the more obvious one is about dose. Patients are timetabled for 90 hours of therapy. So this is a bigger dose than has been used in many clinical trials of various upper limb interventions. There's one other study that's been published 
um, in 2015 by McCabe et al, where they delivered 300 hours of an intervention for the upper limb over about 12 weeks. And the magnitude of the change that they got in the scores, the upper limb scores, was, was similar to ours. So there's something about increasing the dose. So we would argue, first and foremost, future clinical trials that are going to be performed in this area should be done with a high dose intervention. That's the first thing to say. The second thing is that there's a perception out there that after the first three to six months after stroke, it is not possible for stroke patients to be changed by rehabilitation interventions. That all that one can do is to help them compensate to deal with their impairments. But I think these data that we are publishing from our, from our clinical service demonstrate quite clearly that it is certainly possible to change people both at the level of impairment as well as activity and participation. And I think that is a game changer for me. I think that is the thing that opens the door for patients to say, well, why am I not getting more of this kind of intervention? And for other centers around the country or around the world to say, well, why are we not doing this kind of intervention? So that's my hope that people will, will see these data and it will change their mind about what is possible in terms of trying to help people in the chronic phase of stroke. Absolutely, and it seems to you know your paper um, and the data within it certainly contributes to us think a wider understanding of this idea that actually chronic stroke is able to be rehabilitated. Um, I do actually remember that a few months ago on the JNMP podcast we had a similar paper that was published was actually about outcomes in lacuna stroke after six months and the ways in which that could actually recovery could and rehabilitation could be achieved. Um, so I think that there is this, yeah, as you say, this really important finding that keeps coming up with these papers, suggesting that these outcomes can be achieved and, and more research should be done in these areas. Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. I mean, I think one of the problems that the field has got itself into is through the use of, uh, of language. So we talk about this window of opportunity for recovery after stroke. And that's that's really come about because of this observation of the of the recovery curves that you see and that they flatten off after about three to six months. And you know, one could argue that the reason they flatten off is because that's when people stop getting treated. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But the other issue is this, this notion of plasticity. So we've known for years from animal models of stroke that there is likely to be a, an increase in the potential for plasticity that, that probably lasts for weeks, if not months, during which the effect of a training intervention has a bigger effect. Now, when that goes away, people talk about the window shutting, but of course, the potential for plasticity, in other words, learning, never goes away. It's just it might not be quite so heightened as it is in the early phase. So really, we should look at the neuroscientific literature and we should say, well, actually, we should be giving high dose, high intensity, uh, high quality therapy to people much earlier after stroke to take advantage of that window. But that doesn't preclude the possibility that you can train somebody and that they can improve in their ability to perform tasks uh, with the upper limb, but the same thing applies to language and to gait and cognition, that that could be done in the chronic phase. So uh, whilst that hyperplasticity window may not be there, the potential for improvement with rehabilitation training is always there. 
certainly some positive and um, really promising findings for chronic stroke patients and their clinicians who are hopefully listening to the podcast. Um, Nick, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. So that was the Associate Editor at the JNNP, Professor Nick Ward from the Department of Clinical and Motor Neuroscience at the UCL Institute of Neurology in Queen's Square, London. We were talking about the Queen's Square Upper Limb Neurobilitation Program, which you can read much more about on jnmp.bmj.com. And for those who are interested, the previous podcast that I mentioned about outcomes in chronic lacuna stroke can be downloaded from the JNMP archives. Thank you so much for listening.